to continue our God in person series. We're talking about love and hate. And so the, for, the portion of the text that we're going to look at is verses 11 to 20. I'll read those again for us. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. This is God's word. So last week we started this new series called God in Person, working through the book of 1 John which we said the theme of 1 John and really the theme of this series is that God came in flesh, incarnation, right? We, we taught that word last week. God became incarnate, and therefore Christians who are in Christ live an incarnate and in-flesh life of love to one another. We said that, that what John is really pressing on us here is the idea that being a Christian is not theoretical, It's not abstract, it's physical, it's it's real. We said last week, Christianity is not a a religion, it's a reality. It's just acknowledging the historical facts and living in line with them. Maybe a way to think about this is like how you uh, have allegiance to a sports team. So if you like a sports team, there's one of a number of reasons why you would do that. Maybe it's because of the city that you live in or the city that you used to live in. Maybe you like a certain athlete or maybe you just like the pretty colors on their jerseys. But you're going to uh, ally yourself with a certain sports team, right? Not because one sports team is objectively better than any other sports team, but because it works for you. And generally, fans of, well, whatever sports team act in mostly the same ways. We pick sports teams based on what works for us, and I think many people think religion is like that. But not Christianity. Christianity is not theoretical. It's not what works for me. It's just the reality of the world that we are living in line with. Maybe a different way to think of it would be like a citizenship. If you're a citizen of a country, it doesn't matter whether the laws of that country work for you. You have to follow them. It's just the reality. You can dislike them or ignore them as much as you want, but eventually it's going to catch up with you because the reality is you live where you live and you have citizenship where you have citizenship. Who you are, what you do, what you value, it's all wrapped up in the reality that's just happening around you all the time. That's Christianity. It's not theoretical. It's not abstract. It's real. It's what's really going on. But the temptation of Gnosticism, like we talked about last time, is to disembody Christianity, to say, I will be a Christian as far as it works for me. I'll be in God's word as long as it's convenient. I'll I'll pray as long as I'm in the mood. I'll serve my neighbor as long as I have the time. I'll be generous as long as I have surplus. But, But God says, that's not Christianity. That's every other world religion, but not this one. And so John continues to press this on us, and and you heard it in the text. He's very forthright with it. 
if you're not living out your Christian faith, you're not a Christian. Right? Like, you can call yourself whatever you want to call yourself, but, but if you're not willing to live in line with what God said, then don't call yourself a Christian. That's really hard for cultural Christians in North America, people like us, where we've lived in a culture that was essentially Christian by default for a really long time. A lot of the moral values, or at least perceived moral values of our culture, were built because, well, the majority of people had at least a Judeo-Christian worldview for a long time. And so we assume that just sort of living like a nice North American person is being a Christian, when really the Bible says, no, it's not. It's to live the way God calls us to live, to live in line with what the scriptures say. And all that is to get us to this point. John's main goal in writing this is to get us to repentance. Right? We said contrition and faith. Contrition, to acknowledge that the way I am living is not in line with what God has said. And to say, I, I don't deserve to be in your presence, God. I do not deserve to be saved. I do not deserve to call myself a Christian. But for the sake of Jesus, who lived for me, died for me, and rose again for me, my faith, I can know that I am righteous before God. Not because of my work, but because of his work. And that then leads us to want to say, okay, if that is the case, then how ought I to live my life? How ought I to make changes? How ought I to change my schedule or alter my priorities? Does it mean that I have to, to move or quit that thing or stop doing this or stop buying that or stop clicking on this? What is it going to be that's going to help me live in line with what I know to be true in Jesus? So that, by way of review, is kind of where we're coming from with this God in person series. So today we're going to focus on two words, hate and love, two words that are very common in our, in our conversation even today. Um, well, we're going to look at them from a biblical worldview, an, an in-person worldview, if you will, uh, a, a particularly biblical and, and embodied way of looking at those words. I think as, as culture talks about hate and love, they have a certain thing in mind. Um, Christianity is going to be a little bit different, and we want to get that perspective right here from the scriptures on these two words. So if you want to take notes along with us, you can see those are my two points today, hate and love. So first, let's start with hate. Um, as John starts here, he he tells us to think back to the Old Testament story of Cain and Abel. He says, do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Do so you remember this story? It was right at the beginning of the Bible. Adam and Eve are the first two human beings. Their first two children are two boys, Cain and Abel. And since it's relatively short, I'm just actually going to read you the text from Genesis so we can remember this story of Cain and Abel. Moses writes for us, In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and on his offering, but on Cain and on his offering he did not look with favor, so Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If what you do, excuse me, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. So there you have it. The first evidence of murder in the Bible. The first two brothers, one of them kills the other. So what's John's point in bringing up this story for us? Well, I think it's first of all to set the stage, maybe the, the, uh, the sphere in which we're talking about hate and love. You saw it right at the beginning of the text from 1 John. He says, this is the command we've had from the beginning. We should love each other. Well, who is the each other that he's talking about? He's talking about Christians. 
We ought to love one another. You've heard last week, he's always talking to dear children, my children, his spiritual children, those, those people whom he is over as their pastor. He's saying, among us Christians, we know this command that we ought to love each other. And so we ought not to be like Cain. Well, why? Because Cain and Abel were the first church. Right? What were they doing in the text? They were worshiping. Cain was bringing his offering. Abel was bringing his offering. But then the conflict started. Cain's offering was not accepted because he did not do it in line with what God had commanded. And Abel's offering was accepted because he was in line with what God had commanded. And, well, there you go. Turns out that the first conflict in the first church was over worship. Sound familiar? How many churches, including ours, fight about worship? Turns out it's, it's right in the text. This is, this is what happens. Within churches, there are conflicts. There, is, there are ways that we disagree or, or things that we do that some of us are in line with God's word and some aren't. And, and there's tension and there's, there's brokenness and there's inequality and there's all these sorts of nasty things that happen within church that cause us not to love one another. Now, now John's point here is to take an extreme example of murder to help us see... A, a probably less visible but equally dangerous problem. That's hate. In our church, as far as I know, no member of our church has killed another member. You can correct me if I'm, I'm wrong on that. But what I, what I do know happens is exactly what John is warning against here. That even though we maybe never pull the trigger or pull the knife, we hate one another. We hate one another. And the problem with that is that I think we are very quickly deceived into thinking that we're not hating one another. Because when we see, think of hate, we often think of external things. Right? We think of hate speech or hate crimes or murder. But John says, no, it's, it's far more internal. It's far earlier than any action you might take. There, there's something deep going on in your heart that's messed up, that's wrong. The way he says it in the text is like this. Why did he murder him? Why did Cain murder Abel? Well, because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. It wasn't really about Abel. At at some point, it was just really about Cain and what was going on in his heart. And so what's the the primary application for us? I think it's easy for us to think, as long as I'm not speaking ill of somebody, gossiping about them behind their back, maybe excluding them from certain things because they're not the type of person that I like to be around within my church community, I'm okay. But John actually says, no, that in and of itself, that's hate. I mean, he uses these words later in the text to help us understand this. He says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? And he says brother or sister, he's talking about fellow Christians. If you see a fellow Christian and you cannot treat them with the dignity of seeing their humanity as something you should support or build up. You hate them. It's not enough just to ignore them. It's not enough to just say, I'm going to try to avoid them. It's not enough to say, well, I've never said anything really mean or done anything really mean to them. But God says that if you're neglecting a brother or sister, that's hate. And that's really hard. <laughs> Like you get to this text and you're like, okay, first command is the command we should, we've always had. We should love each other. Yes, I can do that. And then the next thing he says is, don't be like Cain who murdered his brother. Check, I can do that. But then John pulls the rug out from under us, doesn't he? And says, that's not hate. What's hate is, is when you neglect one another. 
when you don't treat each other with the same type of dignity that, that you deserve as ones built in the image of God and redeemed by the blood of God. If you can't find that love for each other, how can the love of Christ be in you? But I think we can press this a little bit farther. Because the world in general tends to think of, of hate as something that is external, but really the Bible talks about it as internal, and that has so many implications for how we live, not just in here, but out there as well. We might think to ourselves, I'm not a hateful person, but if this is the definition of hate, then think about stuff that happens outside of here. Like, for example, if you, you're so rushed in your life that you don't have the time to treat the other people that you come across in your life as real human beings, like to acknowledge that they have humanity and to, to speak to them like more than just the robots who are doing your groceries or giving you money at the bank or whatever the thing is, you hate them. If you have a, a person that you're, you're avoiding because they're not your type of person, or, or maybe they just really annoy you at work, or maybe they're a family member who one too many times has brought up the wrong conversational topic at dinner. And so you, you kick them out or you, you move away or you push them out of your life. You hate them. If you know what God says about loving your neighbor, but you don't find the time to actually reach out to your neighbor, to hear what's going on in their life, to do something for them or to make something for them or to ask them how they're doing, you hate them. Or if you know the good news, the gospel, that Jesus has died for all people and all people are forgiven in him and all that they need to do is believe that message, but you're not willing to tell people about it, you hate them. That changes a lot of our perspective, doesn't it? We think of hate primarily in external terms, but really what the Bible tells us is hate is something that is, is very internal. And so every one of us ought to repent. Right? That's John's point. To press on us that it's, it's not enough to just say, that's not my problem, or I don't want to deal with that, or those people are toxic. That's hate, right? And maybe as my last point here, this is going to offend, I think, some who have a very stereotypical conservative worldview. Right, because a typical conservative worldview says there are so many opportunities. If you can't get ahead or you can't advance in the world, it's your own fault. You're not working hard enough. You've got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That's the conservative worldview, and that is anti-biblical. The Bible would say if you see somebody in need, but you're not willing to step into their life, you hate them. Okay, so if that's hate, then what's Love. Um, in order to understand love, we probably have to take a little bit of a, a historical trip. Uh, through the 19th and early 20th century, there was this movement called Romanticism. Um, romanticism was identified with really two kind of big ideas. One of them was the value and the um, autonomy of the individual, and then also the, the power of the emotions. Now, we kind of think these things just are kind of the way the world is. It's our culture. It's, it's the water that we're swimming in that we don't even think about very often. But, but this was a new idea, that love would be something that you were primarily feeling, not something you were doing, and something that was more concerned with yourself rather than with the community. It's a very modern idea. Just to show you how you believe this without even thinking about it, um, when you got married, or if you're thinking about getting married, 
Uh, is the primary thing that you're thinking about in a spouse uh, that they are reliable, that they are a, a good provider for you, that they are faithful? Are you thinking about those things? You might think about those things, but they're probably not the first thing you're thinking about, right? The first thing you're thinking about is, how do they make me feel? How do they make me feel? Another example of this, uh, I mean, every one of us in this room knows that political discourse right now is really bad, um, that people on either sides of an issue can't really talk to each other. You know why that is? Because we cannot fathom loving someone if we don't have positive feelings about them. And so if I look at somebody on the other side of the issue and I think that they are a crazy Marxist or a radical alt-right, whatever you want to call them, then I don't feel good about that. How can I give them the dignity of having a conversation with them? We can't fathom the idea of loving somebody without there being an emotional component to it. But the Bible is exactly the opposite of that. Maybe antithetically to, to what we said before, our culture tends to think of love as something that is internal. It's something that I feel for my needs. But the Bible sees love very external. You saw how the, the text said it, right? It said, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. You know, if you would read through the Gospels, hear all the biographies of Jesus, and you know what you'd never see Jesus do? coming up behind like James and John, wrapping his arms around them and saying, you know, I just love you guys. He never does that. Now, it's not that Jesus was devoid of emotion. You see his emotion very often. And it's not that he didn't love those who were following him, but, but he, instead of saying it, chose to show it. Right? As John says in the text, it was done with actions and in truth, not with speech. And that, again, is really hard for us. Because how easy is it to say, I'm a loving person, I love everybody, I love you. But then to actually show it? That's another step. And especially as we look at this text and realize what Jesus did to show us his love for us. He laid down his life. He gave up what was valuable to him. He gave up something that mattered, something that cost him. In that sense, he showed us that biblical true love requires sacrifice. That if we're going to love the way that Jesus loved, it's going to cost us something. It can't be from what we have extra, our surplus, what's convenient. It must be something that actually lowers us in life. It lowers the amount of time we have for ourselves or the amount of energy we can spend on things we want to spend it on, or maybe even our socioeconomic status. True love looks like sacrifice. And for a second, let me just press you on this. Like, what could that look like in our lives? Like, would you be willing to sell your house and downsize so that you could help a young person in our congregation make a down payment on a house? Would you only have one car so that you could help somebody make their car payments? Would you not go on a vacation so that you could send someone else on a vacation? Would you be willing to set aside money that you have in a, a nest egg for your retirement so that you can help someone right now? Would you be willing to give up the time that you save for yourself at the end of the day to relax in order to serve your neighbor? Would you be willing to give up your privacy to bring someone into your house that you don't know her very well so you could serve them dinner and learn about them, love them as well as Christ loves them? 
It's going to look a thousand different ways in a thousand different people's lives. But the principle right here, I think, is very clear. True love requires sacrifice. And that's not what our culture thinks. But our culture thinks love is about my emotions. And yet the Bible says that love is about how we live externally to one another. We have this statement, actions speak louder than words. I'm sure you've used it before. We have a really easy time applying that to other people, don't we? Their actions spoke louder than their words, but, but for us, we so easily hide behind our intentions, don't we? Oh, it was a bad week. I was trying my hardest. I made the best of a bad situation. I had good intentions. But the Bible will press us and say, no, actions do speak louder than words, even in our own lives. And so once again, this leads us to repent. To say the love that God calls from me as his child, whom he indwells, to live the life of love and sacrifice to every person that they come across, I've not lived up to that. I've not been the person that God called me to be, and so I must come to him and say, I do not deserve to be saved, but for the sake of Jesus, who lived for me, died for me, and rose again for me, I know that I am righteous in your eyes, and so forgive me, and then I will leave my life of sin. So, at this point, you might be thinking to yourself, wow, this is really hard. Because we like to think of ourselves as not hateful people and generally pretty loving people, but the Bible sort of eviscerates that idea, doesn't it? So let me finish with with two things. First of all, if at this moment your heart is condemning you, that you have not lived up to the way God has, has called you to live, then hear what John says. If your heart condemns you, know that God is greater than your heart. That if it depended on you, if it was your, your ability to live up, to be enough, to accomplish, to love the way Christ wanted you to love, you would never do it. It is impossible. But God is greater than your heart. The guilt that you feel about the way that you treat other people, God is greater than that guilt. The neglect that you have shown to your neighbors or maybe those even closest to you, God is greater than it. And so what you can know is the message of the gospel that though your sins are many, God's mercy is more. That wherever you have fallen short, God has lived up in the person of Jesus for you. And once you understand that, once you believe that, once that melts your heart, to understand that your status is completely clean before God, that you are free from any accusation that Satan could bring against you, then, well, then live it out. Don't love just in, in speech or words, but in action and in truth. Or as John says in another place in the text, when you understand that we have passed from death to life, we can love one another. See, what the Bible says is this really counterintuitive thing that, in a sense, your life is already over. You already died in Christ. When, when Christ died on the cross, your life, as you used to live it, was finished. And that means that all the stuff that we, we push into our lives to try to make ourselves feel worthy or feel happy, it doesn't matter anymore. We don't have to, to make enough money or be a successful person or be a well-liked person. Now, our life is, is already over. And in the same way that people will say about you when you die, well, 
there's nothing more that they can do. That's exactly what Jesus is saying for you right now. You have that freedom. If that's the case, that you don't need to do anything for yourself, how could you live for somebody else? The message of the gospel is that you are completely free, not only from accusation, not only from guilt, but also from requirement. Now, that freedom is not just so that you can do whatever you want. It's freedom so that you can do what serves everyone else instead of yourself. Now, I realize this is a little bit abstract and esoteric. So, uh, to some extent, I'm going to have to apply this to you each individually. And if you have some struggle with this, come and talk to me. And I'll, I'll work it out in your life exactly what it looks like. But, but maybe we can think of this. Like, can we just all commit to as much as we are able to do it, looking at every single person we run into and just dignifying their humanity. Like, like speak to them like a real person who has a real life with a real history, real values, real emotions. And you may not like them or like what they think or like what they say, but treat them with that kind of love. If we can start there with the people we run across in, in the store or on the train, or at, at practice, or, or wherever it is, I think we'll start to see more and more opportunities to live a life of love like God has called us to live. Brothers and sisters, let's not just, just say that we love people. Let's live like Christ lived. So, last thing, and then, and then we'll land the plane here. One of the first writings that we have about the early Christian church, so the first century church, is a, a document called the Letter to Diognetus. The Letter to Diognetus. as a letter between two Romans who were talking about the Christians. And they were lamenting the fact that many of the Romans were starting to convert to Christianity and stop worshiping at the Roman temples, which of course was a big financial drain on their economy. In the letter... The, the, the author says that uh, the reason these Christians seem to be attracting so many people is, and this is his exact phrase, that they have a common table, but they don't share their bed. In other words, they had stingy sexual ethics, but they were generous with every other aspect of their life. Another author said it this way from that same time period. They share their homes, but not their wives. Let me ask you this. Is that how people talk about the Christian church today? Are people, even if they don't agree with us, so overwhelmed by our generosity, by our kindness, by our patience, by our compassion, by our hospitality, that they start to complain to one another? Why are people following these people? I think you and I know that's not the reputation of the church. But what if it was? What if right here we started in our congregation with that kind of love? I'm not saying it would convert a whole community or, or convert a whole city or convert a whole country like the early church did. But what if it brought a couple more people to know Jesus through the love that we show them? What if when people come to our life talks or people meet you at coffee or in your home, they would say, man, I may not believe what you believe, but you love like nobody else. That's what people said about Jesus, right? Even people who didn't agree with him, didn't believe in him, they commented on, on the way that he spoke and the things that he did. 
Crowds gathered, crowds of people that would eventually leave him at certain things that he taught, but they were so attracted to the generosity of this man. If we live like him, why don't we believe the same thing would happen? So, let's repent of our hate and repent of our lack of love. And then know that because Jesus laid down his life for us, we are free from that guilt and free to love our neighbor. That's a life incarnate, a life that befits what our Savior did by coming in flesh to be with us. Let's pray about that. Jesus, thank you for being one of us for all of us, coming in person instead of making proclamations from on high or using your power from afar. I pray that you would work that same kind of love in us that we would not just say that we love one another or love those outside these walls, but that we would live it, that we would step in in the same way you stepped in, that we put resources or time or energy on the line for the sake of somebody else, that we would realize because our lives are over effectively in you that the, the time we still have here on earth, we can live to your glory in the service of our neighbor. God, we all struggle with this. I struggle with this. I want to live my comfortable Western North American life. Make me more like you by the power of your Holy Spirit. Overcome my unbelief, overcome my sin, and make us a community, a beacon of light where people say, we may not agree with them, but we, we can't imagine a community without them. We see so many opportunities around us, Lord Jesus, to, to bring people to know your love. Make us bold in those moments to love like you would to ask ourselves, what would you do if you were us? Ask that in your name. Amen.